I so wanted to do that whole song, but anyway. <laughs> so, unusual message today. For you that are visiting for the first time, yes, we preach about money every single week. We want your money. Uh, no, you could probably be in this church, you that have been around for a while, for a year, and uh, maybe only hear one message about money in the course of a year. We try to deal with what Scripture deals with in the balance that it deals with it. But let's ask that question for ourselves today. Why do I, and you do, we all do, why do I, why do we care about money? And we do. And it's rational, and it's okay. Uh, it's nothing to feel uncomfortable or guilty about. Some of you are thinking, man, I knew I should have stinking slept in this morning. <laughs> I was thinking about riding my bike today, man. I, well, I don't know why I came in here. All right, let's start off with a couple slides. Why do we care about money? They're going to be right there. There they are. <laughs> First of all, money opens the door to desirable experiences in life. Let's just be honest. Money has the immediate power to elevate my comfort and enjoyment level. Immediate power, immediate impact. I can get some comfort and some enjoyment so I can participate in. Money has the power to give me a temporary, but what kind? False sense of significance. That's personal value and worth. Security. And satisfaction. It has that power to tempt to give me a temporary but false sense of significance, security, satisfaction. And that's the things that we are meant to receive from our Creator. Um, he is the only one that can give us a true sense of significance and true security and true lasting satisfaction. Satisfaction that can satisfy our deepest core desires, which rarely we, we tap into. So these are just some obvious reasons why we care about money. Now, Wells Fargo did a survey recently, and they found that money is the most difficult subject for people to talk about. People would rather talk about death than money. And uh, not surprisingly, the American Psychological Association uh, found that money, since 2007, 2017, 10 years in a row, is the number one cause of stress, stress amongst Americans. Little moment of honesty and confession. How many of you in the past month have had some stress concerning money? Can I see your hands? Well, the American Psychological Association was right. How about the other survey? How many of you just love to talk, particularly with your spouse, about money? Can I see your hands? Oh, there's no hands up. How about that? <laughs> so it's not comfortable. It's not comfortable to talk about. When you go to Scripture, and here we have... God revealing himself in all of his fullness in Jesus. We find Jesus, our creator, saying some pretty unusual things about money. He just had a very strange attitude about money. Uh, for example, he saw a woman going to the temple giving an offering. She was a widow woman and she gave everything she had. And instead of Jesus stepping in and saying, hey, hey you, you know, you've got to take care of yourself. You, he praised her. For giving everything. First thing comes into my mind, how's she going to pay her rent, Jesus? But he didn't seem to be concerned. He said she was doing something good. There was another lady. She had this extraordinarily expensive perfume. I guess it was going to be kind of like a retirement plan or something. They said in Scripture it was worth a year's wages. How much do you make a year? Anyway, whatever you make a year, that's what that perfume was worth. And she busted the thing and poured it over Jesus. And the disciples got really upset. They're like, this is a waste of money. This should have been given for other causes. Jesus said, whoa, 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 guys. She's doing this in pro the prospect of my soon burial. It's a good thing she's done. He didn't seem to mind that she blew a year's income on an offering for him. 
there was a rich guy that came to Jesus. And he said, Lord, my master, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, oh, well, you know, keep all the commandments. And, he, and this guy had the audacity to say, I've done that since I was a youth. I've kept them all. Jesus said, yeah, really? And he was rich, mind you. Jesus said, tell you what, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, now that was pretty stiff you know, requirement. The, the guy walked away. Most of us would walk away. So Jesus had some very unusual views about money. Was, was he so out of touch that he has no practical wisdom to impart to you and I? Or is it possible that our creator who loves us more than we love ourselves and knows what's best is trying to show us something about money that is hard to learn from any other source but God and his word? So I'm just going to ask you, because I'm going to be doing a lot of teaching. I'm going to take you through a lot of scripture. We're going to go really fast. I'm just going to ask you to open your heart and mind to hear with fresh ears what God says in his word about this topic. We're going to start by going to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. It'll be page 1182. So if you don't mind, turn there with me, because we're going to read quite a bit today. Luke, chapter 16. Jesus starts out by giving a parable, and it is the most peculiar parable of all the ones that Jesus gave. Luke 16, page 1182. Go ahead and get there fast because I'm going to be going really, really fast today. Here we go. I hear the page is still rustling. I'll say Jesus real slow. Jesus. You there now? <laughs> Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who was in, informed of accusations that his manager was wasting his assets. So he called the manager in and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your administration because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what should I do since my master is taking my position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what to do so that when I am put out of management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he contacted his master's debtors one by one. He asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? The man replied, oh, 100 measures of olive oil. The manager said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. And then he said to another one, how much do you owe? The second man replied, 100 measures of wheat. The manager said to him, take your bill, write 80. And then this unusual response, verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly or wisely, whatever term you want, for the people, now here's Jesus' application. For the people of this world, meaning the unconverted, are more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries than the people of light, meaning the converted or Christians or those aligned with God. And then he goes on with his application. Now the rest of this is Jesus' application of that parable. I tell you, he says to me and to you, Make friends for yourselves by how you use worldly wealth so that when it runs out, you will be welcomed into the what kind of homes? Eternal homes. Eternal. He's turning the attention off of this earth. He's saying invest your money in such a way that it's going to have eternal impact benefit for you. He goes on. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in... I read it wrong. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in very little 
is also dishonest in much. If then you have been trustworthy, excuse me, if then you haven't been trustworthy in handling what? Worldly, is anybody else with me except these couple up here in the front? You guys just mad at me because I'm talking about money? Jesus is. Jesus, Jesus is talking. Okay, let, let's try this one more time. If then you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who then will trust you with true what? Riches. True riches. If you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you your own? Now, focus in a little bit because he, he's saying some interesting things here. If you haven't been faithful, he starts off in verse 10, or the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. The one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you haven't been trustworthy in handling, what is the words again? Worldly wealth. Who will trust you with what? True riches. They're, they're so he's saying worldly wealth is not true riches. We're going to look at that in a minute. And if you haven't been trustworthy with, what does it say? Someone else's property, meaning that worldly wealth is not our property. It's God's entrustment to us. Well then, who will give you your own, meaning future tense, will be given something of our own. And then Jesus summarizes it with this. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in, what does it say? Money. And earlier I said money can give a temporary false sense of significance, security, and satisfaction. These are things we can only receive in their true form from God. And that's why money can be a, tempor uh, a kind of a competitor in our uh, affection and in centering our lives around with God. Because it gives us a lot of things immediate that God can only give us fully and completely forever. It gives us little short feelings. In other words... Money can make you feel significant. You know, if you drive the right car, wear the right clothes, take the right trips, have the right kind of house, you can feel more significant than other people just by virtue of that. Money can make you feel secure. You look at your numbers in your bank account and you feel secure. It gives a false sense of security. It can also give a false sense of satisfaction. It can only satisfy some desires of ours. It cannot satisfy our core desires. They're way too big and that would require eternity. All money can do is satisfy us for as long as we're breathing and brain still ticking, which really truly isn't that very long. But it can delude us for a long enough period of time that we don't focus on God. That's why Jesus said, you're either going to serve one or you're going to serve the other. You can't serve both at the same time. Well, Jesus said some interesting things. He said that money is not true riches. That sounds odd. Uh, let me show you a picture of some things that we, we typically think of with true riches. Bars of gold, um, a gigantic diamond, stacks of $100 bills. I'm telling you, those are not true riches. Jesus would agree. They're not true riches. You say, what are we talking about, man? If I had that, I could, I could buy plenty. Let me show you why they're not true riches. Supposing that I could take you, transport you to the middle of the Sahara Desert in which you are completely lost. You're in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Se severe temperatures and things like that. You have no food. You have no water. And I've kept you hostage there for three days. All right? And now I bring before you, if I could get that slide back real quick, I bring before you these gold bars and this big diamond and stacks of $100 bills. What good are they to you? Are they any good at all? It's because they're not true riches. You know what true riches would be? 
If I said, I got a ham sandwich and a jug of water, you want those? <laughs> or you want the diamond? You take the ham sandwich and the jug of water because they're true riches for our contemporary lives. You see, those things are all symbols. That's all they are. They're just symbols. And we attach wealth to them, but that's all they are. Jesus is saying that in this life, worldly wealth isn't really a true rich. He's saying the true riches are going to be given to people in eternity. Let me just give you one thought on a true rich or what, what, what a true rich might be like in eternity. Down in this present world, you and I can create things. We can use our minds, get ideas, and then we have to use our bodies, do physical things to bring things into existence. But we have creative power given to us from our creator. But you know what the difference is between us and God? God just thinks it, and it's instantly created. We have to do things. We have to work real hard, take the idea, put some flesh and hard work behind it. What if in eternity, God flips that switch when you're given your new immortal body and part of the ability that you have now is you can use your mind and create whatever you want wouldn't that be a true rich jesus also said about these true riches he said the things we have now they're temporary they're somebody else's property but he says you're going to get things that are yours forever nothing we have down here is forever you know you know the old thing you don't see uh, you know, people with, um, uh, what, what is the deal, a hearse and, and, and a U-Haul behind it or something like that. Anyway, you know the point, man. When you die, you leave it all behind. We all leave the same amount. So it's not, it's not permanent. And Jesus said a lot of interesting things. He said, if you haven't been faithful with something that's not your own, meaning money. In other words, the scripture teaches that God entrusts us with a certain amount of money, a certain ability to make wealth. It's not ours, it's his. You're going to see that in a minute by some other verses. And then he wants us to manage it the way that he would like it to be managed. Because it's not mine, it's his. I just have it for a short period of time. Again, I told you, Jesus views money very, very differently than we do. Let's look at a couple of verses that just say a little bit more about money. Beginning in Proverbs 11:25. we're going to go fast. Those who trust in their wealth are headed for a great what? disappointment it's just reality the rich think their wealth is their sturdy fortress they imagine it to be an invincible wall of security but it's not doesn't matter how big your, those bank accounts are doesn't matter how much insurance doesn't matter how many houses we have ooh, ooh, and we're gone no security security is in god Let's look at another one. In uh, Luke chapter 12, Jesus warned about this. There was a guy that wanted him to divide an inheritance between him and his brother. And Jesus, you know, he, he's like astounded that the guy would be bothered about this. He said, watch out and be on guard. Guard yourself from all types of greed. There's all different kinds of greed. Because one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But the whole American economy is built around the concept that there is life in the abundance of your possessions. Shh, don't tell anybody the company, the whole country will collapse, the economy will go down. But that's the notion. If you have the right stuff, if you can get the right experiences, if you got the right stuff surrounding you, if you can immerse yourself in enough beauty, man, you're going to be happy. You're going to have a full life. That's the way to go. That's the American dream. That's the thing that counts the most. How many of you know some very, very wealthy people that are not happy? Can I see your hands? But I also know some that are. <laughs> so it can work both ways. Point is, is happiness and money don't necessarily go together. Let me say one other thing so that you don't get on the wrong end of this spectrum. There is nothing wrong with being wealthy. The scripture never says there's anything wrong with being wealthy. Wealth is a divine entrustment. It's all in how we handle it. 
In fact, you're going to see toward the end of this message that an individual that God entrusted with a lot of money did something with it extraordinarily wonderful that is still having impact 100 years later. But anyway, one more from Ecclesiastes 5.10. As the saying goes, those who love money will never be, what does it say? Satisfied with money. And those who love riches will never be happy with what they have. This too is fleeting. Now, I want to show quickly three other truths about money that Jesus touched on in this little portion of Scripture we looked at. Here we go. Number one, in Deuteronomy 10, 14, and it repeats this in Psalm 24 and other parts of Scripture, the Scripture teaches again and again that God owns everything. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. Everything is God's. Everything that I have is given to me as a divine entrustment for my time on earth. I don't own anything. Imagine it like this. Supposing that you owned a home, okay, but then you said to somebody, I'm going to go out of the country for three years, and you know, you've got your home decorated just the way you want. You've got the walls painted just the way you want, and you're very meticulous about how you clean. You tell the person, say, look, now I'm going to let you live in my home and take care of it for three years, rent-free. Is that a good deal? How many say a good deal? Rent-free, three years, good deal. But you need to take care of my home the way you know I take care of my home. You know how finicky I am about my, my, my walls and my paint and my furniture and everything. So that's all I'm asking. Three years, rent-free. So now, if you came home, let's say you come home a year earlier uh, than what was expected, and you walk in, they have repainted your home, they have trashed your furniture, your carpet has dirty footprints all over it. How many know you're going to be a little bit upset? You're going to be upset, right? Why are you upset? You weren't living in it. Why are you upset? Because it's your house. You entrusted it to them. You gave it to them, but you expected them to treat it the way you would have it treated. God entrusts. You don't have to believe this. You don't have to buy it. Jesus talks about a day when we'll all give account to God. But every dollar, every dime, every penny that passes through my hands, it's God's. And everyone that passes through your hands, it's God's. So we start there. God owns everything. Deuteronomy 8, 17. Now, God knows that we don't really think that way, so he threw this verse in there to remind us something. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember... The Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the what? The ability to do what? But we tend to think, wait a minute, I've worked hard for this. You know, it was me that worked, God. It wasn't you. And God's saying, that's true, but I gave you the ability to make the wealth. Truth number three. The very beginning, when God took his people out of, out of bondage in Egypt, he taught them how to give, how to learn to be generous. How, how many of you know how to ride a bike? Can I see your hands? Okay, how many of you know how to roller skate? Can I see your hands? Okay, how did you learn how to ride a bike or roller skate? Did you read a book or did you just start doing it? How many just started doing it? Can I see your hands? Yes. How do you learn to be generous? You just start giving. How do you learn to be kind, to become a kind person? You just start doing kind things. God instructed his people right from the beginning that the first 10% of everything that passed through their hands was to be devoted to him and to his work. The first 10% was God's. You didn't wait for leftover and see if there was enough leftover for God. You gave the first 10% to God. That's what he taught his people from the Old Testament. It carries right on till now. There's no reason for us not to consider it something that would be a wise practice today. I heard about this family, and they were very devoted to God, and they wanted to teach their little daughter right from her earliest days the importance of managing God's money the way God would want, want her to. 
So they gave her an allowance, 10 bucks a week. And so she received her first little allowance, $10, and they said to her, now, you know, when you go to church this morning, remember, the first, before you spend any of the rest of the money, the first tenth of that, the first dollar goes to the Lord and his work. And she says, oh, yes, Mommy, yes, Daddy, of course. The first, the tenth part goes to the Lord, absolutely. So they went off to church, and, you know, after church, they saw their daughter with an ice cream cone, and they knew she had bought her own ice cream cone and, you know, was quite, quite proud of herself. And they said, so, so did, you, did you give your offering to the Lord today? And the little girl said, Oh, well, uh, I really couldn't do it today. And they said, why not? And said, well, I was counting my money just before I went inside the church. And the wind came along and blew the money out of my hand. And I chased it and I chased it. But, but the Lord's dollar went down the sewer. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we say, God, you know I don't have any money left. Your money, I don't know, blew down the sewer or something. That's why the Lord instructed his people from the beginning, give to him and his work first. Because there might not be anything left if you don't. (laughs) And learn to live on the rest. That's the way he instructed his people. I'm just telling you the way, you know, God does things. So, what's God's big purpose in money? Because now we're all really uncomfortable. Except for we that have learned to be generous, godly givers. We're comfortable. How many of you are sitting there? You're rooting. Preach it, man. Preach it. Yeah. Because really, great churches all over the world, all through history, become great because they have great, faithful, devoted, generous givers. And unfortunately, usually, the percentage of those generous, great godly givers is disproportionately small i wish i could say here at fcf it's not the truth we 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 do pretty good but in all honesty it could it could swing if if it if it if it just swang a little bit oh my goodness what uh what could be done in frederick and around the world for the cause of christ so here's what i want you to see what god's purpose is money is a divine character developmental tool. God is more interested in how we use money because money will enable us to learn to be generous. God is generous. He gives all. He is the greatest giver in the universe. And he wants his kids to be generous. And he entrusts us with money because it's power, man. It's a lot of power. Like I said at the very beginning, it can elevate our comfort and our enjoyments in life and open doors of experience. And it can even give us a false sense of significance, security, and satisfaction. So this power is a perfect tool to teach us. How do you learn to ride a bike? By doing it. How do you learn to skate? By doing it. How do you learn to be generous? By handling money the way God says to, which involves giving. There's no other way to develop generosity that I know of. Interesting story. Someone said, to, you know, was praising Warren Buffett. How many, you know, Warren Buffett's the second richest man in the world. Bill Gates being the richest. Uh, Warren Buffett gave $29 billion away. $29 billion. Okay? And this reporter was interviewing him and kind of praising him. And Buffett was, was wonderfully honest. He looked at the report and he said, you know, don't praise me like I'm some big generous guy here. He said, frankly, it didn't affect my lifestyle at all. You see, generosity can be measured sometimes by how much it's affecting us. So that's why money is such a good tool. Because when you give something away, it does take away some of your power, some of my power. Uh, it, It is a good 
developmental tool, and that's how God intended it to be used. I don't know about you guys, but in my uh, neighborhood, there was always inevitably the stingy kid. The stingy kid would come out and have a whole box of cookies. I mean, a whole box. And you say, hey, man, hey, hey, Christy, can I have one of those cookies? No, no, get your own cookies. The stingy kid, how many had the stingy kid? We had a stingy kid who used to hang out at the rec center playground with his name, Freddie Knowles. I don't know where he got his money. His brother was a junkie, Mackie, but he always had money. Freddie always had money. We'd be like, Freddie, come on, give, give me a cookie, man. Give, give me a sip of your RC Cola. No, 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 get your own. I mean, unpleasant, ugly people. How many know that stingy, selfish people are just ugly, unattractive people? How, how many go with that? And isn't that why God wants his kids to be generous? We all know generous people are, are attractive. They're winsome. Let me go further. You all, every one of you, every one of us in here tonight, wants to be generous people. If you had Bill Gates' money, you'd be very generous. The reason that some of us struggle with being generous, we want to be generous. Our heart is in the right place, I believe, because God's kind of wired generosity into us. The reason that we have a hard time with it is we're scared. We're scared we're not going to have enough. We're, we're scared we're going to miss out on something. We're scared we're not going to be prepared for the future. There's a lot of things that keep us, but essentially it's fear. But in your heart of hearts, if you knew, if you, let me do this. If you knew you could be a generous, godly giver, giving on the scale that the Lord talks about in Scripture, and your life would be just fine throughout your life. You would have all your needs met. You'd live the same exact lifestyle. And you, you gave profusely. You gave 10% and even over 10%, which myself and a lot of us you know, around here do. Because we want to. But if you knew you could give that way. And your lifestyle would still be the same as it is right now. And you'd make it right to the end. Right to the last heartbeat. Poof. In good shape. How many of you would become godly givers right now? You'd start giving 10% and you give more than that because you know it's not going to affect your lifestyle and you're going to have enough until the end of your life. How many would do it if you absolutely, if, if I could convince you, absolutely that is true. You're going to make it. How many would become godly givers right now? Let me just see your hands. So therefore, it's fear. And fear always revolves around, does it not, my lack of trusting God. Because when I trust God, that counters out fear. Listen to some verses that I hope will just kind of enlighten you some, inspire you some simultaneously. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. He says, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this, what does it say? Grace of what? Giving. Excel in the grace. So I need to ask myself, and you need to ask yourself, am I excelling in this grace, this virtue, this character development, uh, developmental trait of giving? And the only way you develop in it is, is by doing it. Each one of you, should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And I mean that. I, I don't want you to feel any guilt trip compulsion or anything like that. Each one of you should give what you desire to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion for a why. God, what does it say? Can we say it all out loud together? God loves a cheerful giver. But he'll also take money from a crank. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I threw that in. That's not in word. 
It's not in the word at all, no. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because he's a cheerful giver. And he wants his kids to learn in this life to handle worldly wealth, which he says is not even true riches. If we can't be trusted with the way that we handle worldly wealth in this life, he says, how in the world am I ever going to trust you with your own things, true riches, eternal entrustments, eternal power in, in the world to come? You can't get away from it. Jesus' views of money all revolve around us looking at our life as being eternal. And as counting the world to come to be where our fullest heart desires, heart's desires are met. Not in this world. You can't get around that. I shared with you guys before about a Brazilian man. This was, um, you know, an interesting study was done in the psychological journals and so forth. This Brazilian man back in 2013, he had a stroke. And the result of his stroke was he had this condition that they labeled pathological generosity. This is a true story. Uh, this guy was 49 years old. He had this stroke, and all of a sudden, after coming out of the stroke and recovering some, he just wanted to give to people constantly. He would meet strangers on the street, kids, and he'd buy them ice cream, give them candy, just gave, gave, gave. He, didn't want to, he had a very high-level job, wanted to quit his job. He said he just wanted the rest of his life to be doing things that made him feel good. And uh, his family was very worried about him. And I thought, man, I wish that, that stroke would hit a lot of people back in the States. Pathological giving. Or was it pathological? Or, or, or was it maybe logical? Or was it maybe that this guy's fear was removed and so he did what you really want to do when your fear is removed and what I want to do when my fear is removed? When our fear is removed, we want to give. That's who we are because we're making God's image. You don't have to buy this. You just think it through. I'm just sharing God's word with you. goes on to say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Now listen to this. This is kind of an interesting promise. This is, this is as close as God comes to bargaining with us in Scripture. It says, God is able to bless you abundantly. Why, Lord? Why, why, why bless us abundantly? So that in all things, at all times, having all that you, what? How many would like to have all that you need and know that you're always going to have all that you need? Can I see your hands? You're tired of raising your hands, aren't you? I understand that. That was my plan. Having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way. Why, Lord? Why are you going to enrich me in every way? So that you, Randy, can be what? Generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Why does God bless us? Why does God prosper us? According to that verse, so that I can be generous and it's going to bring honor to God. Jesus said, listen, use your worldly wealth so that you can have people welcoming you into their eternal homes. How does that happen? The only way that can happen is I must use wealth in such a way that it can be put into circulation in the hopes that people will be converted or brought to trust in Christ their creator. The only institution on earth that does that, the only institution on earth that does that and does it well and does it from cradle to grave and does it all over the world and is successful everywhere that it's planted is the local church. The church that Jesus said he was building. He didn't say he was building any other institution except the church. 
And this is why for 44 years, I invest in local churches because the church, as Bill Heibel said, is the hope of the world. And it's the church that reaches people for Christ from the cradle to the grave and nurtures them and builds them up and teaches them and trains them and walks through life with them. And the only way you can get somebody into eternity so that they're opening their door, Randy, I'm glad to see you, man. And if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for you in FCF Church, you know I'd have never been here. The only way that happens is when you and I and other believers around the world invest in the work of God through the local church. There is nothing even comes remotely close to the impact, the eternal impact that the local church has. Jesus says, come on, be wise as the people of this age, like the shrewd manager in the unusual parable. He says, use your worldly wealth now that it can have eternal blessings to benefit you. People will be opening their doors saying, man, I'm glad to see you. You know if it wasn't for you and the way you gave, I wouldn't be here. You know that. Come on in. That's what he said. Now Jesus is either making a yarn, spinning a yarn, or he's telling the truth. What do you think? What do you think? Jesus again in Matthew 6. He says, do not, do not accumulate for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't don't amass things. Don't, don't, why, Lord, why? Where moth and rust destroy. In other words, everything wears out, gets old, goes to the junkyard eventually. And where thieves break in and steal. We know about that. You've got to have a good alarm system these days. But accumulate for yourselves treasures where? Now here again, very peculiar sounding. Jesus is either really misleading us. He's our creator. He died on the cross for us to prove his love and trustworthiness. So is he telling us the truth that there is this eternal dimension that's real, that's tangible, and we can invest in it now by the way that we handle worldly wealth? Let's look at what he says. But accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's trying to incentivize us to to invest in the work of God on earth. But accumulate for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Why, Lord, why? Why do you want us to invest in heaven? For where your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be also. Our heart always follows your treasure. Show you how it works. Suppose you look outside and kids are playing ball in the street. They're throwing a hard ball back and forth in the street. Cars parked along both sides. Your car is parked there too. As you look out the window, you happen to notice one of the guys overthrows and the ball goes smash right through one of your neighbor's car windows. You may go like that, but you don't really do anything probably, right? Change scenes. The kids are throwing the ball back and forth, and this time it smashes your windshield. How many of you are out the door? You're out the door on the kid. Come on, let me see your hands. You're out there. Why? Why? Because it's yours. Where your treasure is, your heart's going to follow. Jesus says, invest in eternity. We're all either going to believe that and do that, or we're not. We're not. It's okay. So, I want to close the service in a most unusual way. I'm going to show you a video that, that just all struck me this week with its, its beauty. The beauty of generosity when God's spirit is allowed to have his way in the hearts of people. It's a little bit long, but it's so cool. It'll go by really quick. Then I'll close this out with a couple comments. Here it is. There are many ways of serving the Lord. 
Some people do great things. Some people are good creatures. Some people contribute lots and lots of money. But when we talk about this handful of rice, it is very humble. The service is done in the corner of the kitchen that nobody sees. But God knows. God bless. Every day, simple women in the state of Mizoram in Northeast India are spearheading a revolution that is sweeping the world of missions. Their movement, Bufai Khan, or a handful of rice. Bufai Tam is a practice where each Mizo family puts aside a handful of rice every time they cook a meal and later gather it and offer it to the church. The church in turn sells the rice and generates income to support its work. Rice has been the staple food of the people of Mizoram, the main life of the people. You are giving what is basic, essential, fundamental to your life. You are sharing that with God. The Handful of Rice Ministry started in Mizoram in 1910. That time, many people did not know the gospel. So the church thought that we need Bible women to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible women, they are locally supported women for evangelism. The practice of Bufaitam is meant for supporting those Bible women. This concept of Bufaitam became so popular throughout Mizoram over the years that giving was not limited to some individuals. The whole of Mizoram, rich or poor, young or old, everybody contributed to it. ตัวฟ้าชามนี่ทานตัวบอสอันนี้นั่นที่น่าจังจวนนี่ตุ้มสับสารีอันเรียกเวลามอนยาแต่ที่อันนี้น่าลองทุกันสวยนะอ่ะ
is the Mizoram Presbyterian Church, the largest church in Mizoram with about 500,000 members. This year, they are celebrating 100 years of the handful of rice ministry. In 1914, the money received from the sale of handful of rice was rupees 80, uh, that is uh, one and a half US dollar. In the year 2009 and 2010, we raised money, uh, one and a half million US dollar from handful of rice offering. We don't receive any outside funding. All the money we have, we receive, is raised within ourselves. At the close of this last physical year, we received altogether around 13 million US dollars. Out of that, 12% of our total income is from the handful of rice collection. Today, the Mizoram Church is known as a missionary church world over. This success is attributed to their selfless and creative giving. Mizoram state is the most backward state in India. And we are the poorest of the poor. But still, we can raise funds for the ministry of the Lord. We can support 1,800 mission workers. And in the meantime, we can also send overseas missionaries. There have been times when some churches have thought that we need to get blessings from God. And the attitude has, to, has been, what can we get when we become part of the church? But here, the handful of rice offering inspires us that God has called us to share what we have with God for God's ministry. We Mizou people say, as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day. This one, yeah. Does that, does that just show the beauty, the absolute beauty of, uh, of generosity? That was my only reason. I don't want you to bring in big bucket loads of rice or anything, uh, or firewood or anything like that. And we're not trying to raise money. That's not what this is about. Did that just show you, though, how beautiful these people are? I don't know if you caught what the guy said at one point. He said that this handful of rice thing, they do above the tithe. It brought in, out of the $13 million they brought in, he said it, it brought in 12%, so that's about a million and a half. Fascinating. Let me tell you how this all started. In 1894, there was not one Christian in Mizoram. Mizoram has 1.2 million people. There was not one single Christian. There was a wealthy guy living in England. His name was Robert Arthington, and he loved Christ, and he cared that the message of Christ would spread through the world because he believed that the sooner it spread through the world, the sooner Jesus would return, and that is what the Scripture teaches, by the way. 
And so this wealthy man took large amounts of his wealth and he personally supported the first missionaries that went to Mizoram. They went in, they learned the language, they eventually planted a church. They still in Mizoram to this day on January the 11th, uh, every single year they have, they celebrate as a holiday, their state uh, missionary day because it was in July, excuse me, January the 11th, 1894 that the missionaries first came. Now, I don't know if you caught it, out of the 1.2 million people, 900,000 are Christian. That's an incredible, incredible illustration of what happens when God's people are sincerely passionate about the work of God, spreading the message of Christ, investing in people, inviting people into the kingdom and the church of God. And there is no reason, no reason that this can't happen here. How many of you know that in Frederick right now there's about 248,000 people? That, that's in Frederick County large, 248,000 people. What you also probably would never know is that 59% of them, 59 59%, which is over about 146,000, have absolutely no religious affiliation whatsoever. They are pretty much secularist. 59%. What if, what if this beautiful spirit of generosity so affected FCF Church that we started exploiting every single means available of evangelism, of getting the message of Christ to the people that are not yet reached here in Frederick County? Why couldn't the percentage shift? Why couldn't we do something way bigger than and just make it by? Now, I'm going to close with something that happened this morning with me that was a little bit unusual. Please don't put any more credibility on it than it might just be nothing more than a coincidence. But I'll share it with you because it was very moving to me. I don't know why, but when I woke up this morning, I was in the middle, I guess, of a dream or whatever. But it was real simple. There's not, you know, nothing real shocking here. It was simply this. I woke up with this clear thought going through my head again and again and again of two people standing before God. And the people were equal in every way. In other words, they had the same lifestyle. They had the same amount of income. They were very similar. You, you could tally up. They were very similar. But here's the difference. The one family had learned to be generous, godly givers, and they stood before the Lord. The others convinced themselves in this life that they just didn't have enough. They, they couldn't possibly get by. So I want you right now to think about life's end, because life's end is predicated by what you and I do now. Make no mistake about it. Nothing magical is going to happen. What are you doing now? If you want to be, and this is in, in this dream or whatever you want to call it, the, the question was looming in my head is, which one do you want to be? The one family who their lifestyle was identical. Their income was identical. Their lifestyle was identical. But the one gave generously to the work of God. And they stand before God to be commended. Well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear that. I don't know if it matters to you or not. It's mattered more than anything to me since I was 23 years old. And they heard that. The other Family did not. Now, mind you, they had the same income. They had the same lifestyle. But one convinced themselves that, no, this is all I can possibly spare is just to get by. Some of you are right there. You want to give. It's in your heart. It's written in you because God's a great giver. But your fear has stopped you to this point. It's caused rationalizations of all sort. I'm not trying to sway you one way or another. I want you to just hear the truth. And I hope that maybe some of you by these people, these poorest of poor, 
who give, gave themselves to Christ first and then they give their substance as well and do amazing things. Why can't we start something that all of Frederick will not be able to ignore? When I started this church 25 years ago, that was what was really in my heart all along. Uh, it was not just to get a church to where we're at now. This, this just makes me restless, frankly. I know the potential. 59% of the people in Frederick, 146,000 are unreached. There is no reason that we shouldn't be reaching masses of them. And it starts with you and me investing and inviting, but it also starts with us investing that we can exploit every means of evangelism that can be had. So, on a personal level, I don't know, you maybe want some suggestions. What might you do? Maybe for some of us, this has inspired you to at least consider that, that you're going to examine the way you are handling God's money, because it is His. And you're, He's entrusted it to you. You're going, you're going to take an examination. You're just going to see. You're going to maybe sit down and you're going to say, I bring in this much a year, and I'm going to take a, a step of trust and faith, and I'm going to pledge to God first this much. I'm going to give God whatever it is, 10%. That's a tithe. That's what he's suggested in his word. Some of us might be, man, that's too scary for me. I'm going to start with 2% or 3%. But if God, you know, keeps me together, I'll, I'll maybe take a step a little further next year. Whatever it is, that's between you and God. I don't really want to know. don't care. I'm just asking, which one do you want to be at the end of life? Do you want to be the family that stands before God or the person? Because we're not going to stand as families. We're going to stand as individuals that did not use my time, my talents, and more importantly, my treasure, my money. Because it wasn't mine to begin with, it was God's. The way I could have and should have, but I didn't. You can be that guy if you want, or that gal. That's your choice. It's okay. You're still going to be welcome here. Or do you want to be that other person that hears, well done, good and faithful servant. Mind you, same income, same lifestyle. One invested it God's way. One convinced themselves they couldn't. Which do you want to be? Which do you want to be? The choice of which you will be starts right now. When you make a choice here and walk through that door. So, let's pray and let's ask God for some courage. The truth about life is this, Lord Jesus. All we really need is you. These, these beautiful people so far away. They just bring the light of what really matters. And they show us what tremendous potential we have if only we would really convince ourselves the truth that all we need is you. Please, Father, give people courage today to make decisions that they will be so glad they made when we all stand together for you to give our account. Uh, may we all hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.